It's touching every aspect of your profitability. Your people are leaving you because you don't understand generational insights and codes. They are telling their friends about it way faster than you even know. You have signaled to them that you don't really care about what their lived experience is or what their passions are. And so they just stay away. So understanding what makes them tick and ticks them off can be a significant profit builder for you. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Welcome to Beats Working. There is a costly disconnect in the American workplace today. You've probably heard people debating who gets the final word on where work happens. Is it online, on site, or is hybrid here to stay? Our guest today says the disconnect is a generational one that impacts productivity, success at work, and the bottom line. Ana Liotta is a Seattle-based generational strategist, author, speaker, and business consultant. She says every generation has a code. We all do. It affects how we think, how we communicate, and most important, how we view the world. And Anna says knowing your own code and the codes of others is the key to bridging the disconnect at work. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anna Liotta. Well, Anna Liotta, it's great to have you on the Beats Working podcast. So good to see you. You too. I'm so excited about being with you. So I would love to start out our conversation by saying I think you were probably called at a very early age to become a generational expert because you were one of 19 kids in a family that spans six (laughs) generations. I want you to start your story there. Oh my goodness. Well, you are absolutely right. Generations was a survival strategy. I had to understand it. I had to learn how to navigate it. And honestly, like one of the earliest memories I have about really trying to understand it is because my dad was three generations older than myself. And, um, When I was in undergrad, I was in this organizational development class, and I remember they showed this video called What You Are Now Is Where You Were When. It was a Canadian researcher, Morris Massey, and the the core idea was something happens when you're 10 years old that fundamentally changes the way you see the world. And I'm thinking of my father, and I'm thinking, what happened to my dad when he was 10 years old? And when he was 10, he was living in an orphanage. It was the Great Depression. He was born in 1921. And so anyone in the orphanage that had family whatsoever got pushed back out onto the streets. And so at 10 years old, he found out that he had aunts and uncles and grandparents that were alive that had not taken him in. And it made me think back to this conversation when I was about 16 years old. And conversation is actually a really polite way to say it. I was crying, you know, tears running down my face, not coming out of my nose. And I was saying to him, a GI Jen, why can't you just say you love me? And he got really quiet and he looked at me, Mark, and he said, I put a roof over your head. I put clothing on your back. I put food on the table. That is, I love you. And so here I am sitting there thinking about this, and it made me super curious about how that shaped his choices around parenting. And that began my odyssey of really seeking to understand what shaped us, what formed us, and what became generational codes, really understanding that every single one of us you know, grows up through our life. And what we know from knowledge studies is about age seven, our brains start to make logic, if this, then that. And between the ages of eight to 18, we're watching the world around us. We're watching the leaders, we're watching the icons, we're watching the events. And when there's an event and it's paired with an emotion, it creates an imprint. The higher the emotion, the deeper the imprint. So when you really wanna understand someone, you don't just look at what's happening today. You actually need to look at what happened in those formative years of eight to 18, all the way up to 25. And then you'll understand what I call that generational code, that algorithm that's running in the background, influencing their actions and reactions today. So once I started to understand my dad's generational code, I was like, oh, it gave me a lot of grace and space to Mm -hmm. transform the relationship. And I thought, there's something to this. That is such a poignant story because I think all of us at some point in our lives 
wonder about that other person from the other generation. How come you can't get me? How come you can't get it? But you're right. That generation, that's like my grandparents' generation, you know, uh, you know, not big on gushy words. Um, pro- I'm providing for you. And, and that's that's my my language of love. Yeah. Um, I would love to talk about. Well, let's let's back up a little bit. You are a consultant. You're in the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. You were the president <laughs> of that organization. Um, you've worked with some really big companies. Um, but I think, uh, and we said this before we started recording, Anna. I think where you are as an expert right now is exactly perfectly placed to understand the workplace and what we're going through in America right now. I would love just a perspective statement from you about what you think is happening in the workplace today, post-pandemic. So there were forces at work previous to the pandemic that were moving along at, well, let's say, for some, they would call it a glacial space, (laughs) a pace. Um, For others, they would say it was going too fast already. But what's happened is we've hit a tipping point where our millennials are the majority of the workplace. Prior to that, our baby boomers always had the lion's size share of the workplace, because as we know, there were 80 million baby boomers, both men and women entered the workforce, and they overwhelmed every institution and organization. So they stayed in the workforce 12 years past 65. So we actually didn't see them start to retire at 65 because work had become their life. What they would call, you know, being a work ethic was really a workaholic. And I would even assert it was a work addiction. Their identity became their work. So they stayed in longer. They had better health and they were ready. But what happened with the pandemic is that at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw the great resignation. And a lot of people that had stayed in longer said, I'm out, I don't wanna learn what I have to learn to deal with this new environment. Some people took early retirement because their you know portfolio looked good. And some people said, this is my chance to change careers. So we saw this great resignation. Mm. And what we also saw is that all of a sudden there was a lot of battlefield promotions. Um, top millennials, early stage millennials getting pulled up into a position, Gen Xers finally getting a position that they'd been like, come on, boomers, (laughs) it's time, it's time. And we saw a lot of younger people get pulled into positions as well. What that did is the things that millennials absolutely know is vital to the health of the workforce, they now are in the position to demand it. I always like to say, Mark, there are things that baby boomers dreamed of, like work-life balance. Mm-hmm. and having a job with meaning. Uh, but there was 80 million, so they had to compete. And our Gen Xers desired, but baby boomers were eating their lunch with 80 million and only 44 million Gen Xers. But now our millennials know that they can demand and Gen Z know they deserve. And Gen Alpha coming after them will absolutely just say that's table stakes. And so what's happening in the workplace is this rapid movement of, you know, both technology and agency for the worker to be able to say, this is what is table stakes for me or I'm out of here is really the impact that we're feeling. So I think this would be a perfect time to explain. And I've never had a complete grasp of the different generations, but if you could break down the generations for us uh, by sort of the years and and what defines them, that would be awesome. Excellent. So I'm going to start with our traditionalists, and they were born 1927 to 1945. Then our baby boomers, 1946 to 64. Gen Xers come in at 64 to 77. Our millennials who were called Gen Y as a placeholder name when they first entered, 78 to 99. Then Gen Z, 2000 to 2012. And Gen Alpha is 2013 all the way to 2020. Now, why I start with our traditionalists in the workforce is we still have a a few traditionalists out there. Um, A lot of them are in super high roles or they're in super entry level roles because they left and they came back in. But the key piece about our traditionalists is they laid down the foundation that is still embedded many times inside an organization. Think post-World War II, their training in leadership came right out of the military. And so inside a company, we'll see officers of the company. You know, that's a military co-opted, you know, phrase, right? Deadlines, all these things. And the perspective on loyalty still has a traditionalist element to it because our traditionalists got on with the company and their workplace code was about being a worker. You work hard for 30 years, you're loyal to the company and the company's loyal to you. 
our baby boomers came in and they didn't want to just be workers. They saw themselves as employees, as a generational workplace code. You got on with the company, you figured out what the politics was because you had 80 million people that wanted your job, right? And so they became that first generation of workaholics that wore it on their sleeve like a badge of honor, 80 hours they would compete and who could bleed more company colors and be more loyal. So when you ask a baby boomer, what do you do? They don't even know it, but they leak their generational code by saying, I work for, and they say the name of the company and that's that employee mentality. <laughs> then along came our Gen Xers and they were the ignored children of the baby boomers. Oftentimes we've heard, you know, the first generation of latchkey kids who let themselves in after work on their own. They spent, or after school, they, were, they weren't quite working yet. And they spent more time alone than any other generation. This is really important because Gen Xers are top of line leaders right now. But because they spent so much time alone in that self-managing kind of environment where they kind of say, I was raised by wolves, right? Like, <laughs> I don't feel like anybody was really out there taking care of me. <laughs> yeah. Our Gen Xers now are very much struggling with the level of care and feeding and attention that millennials and Gen Z want because Gen Xers philosophy is just tell me what you want, buy when you want it, then leave me alone. Right. Don't micromanage me. Don't hover because they spent so much time alone as kids. Yeah, they, they were the kids that mom or, mom or dad put a note on the counter and said, you know, food is in the fridge. I want you to do this. Please take the garbage out. And they were on their own. Right. That's right. In fact, you know, in your first interview, Dan talked about that, like his mom, they got divorced and, you know, if they wanted something extra, like she provided the basics and was great. But if they wanted anything extra, like had to get go out and do it on their own and get their, you know, uh, I think he said he had a newspaper route and he had early yeah. jobs. That's that generation. Now, they became incredibly self-reliant. And they also became incredibly good parents because everything they didn't have, they made sure their Gen Z kids had and that they protected them. And that whole reality that they didn't have as a protected child, they made sure there would be no bullying of my kid. And this is going to impact the workplace because now as Gen Z is in the workplace, they are like, listen, the way you just spoke to me is very bullying. And um, guess what? I will cancel you like you can't believe how quickly I can because, you know, they understand agency because their Gen Xer yeah. parents made sure they did. So our Gen Xers see themselves in the workplace as not employees, but free agents. If you ask a Gen Xer, what do you do? They say, I work in and they'll give you the industry because in the middle of the 80s recession, their parents who'd like bled company colors came home one night with a little slip of paper from their work. Do you remember what color that was, Mark? Yeah, pink slip. It was a yeah. pink slip. And all of a sudden, that two-way street was broken. No longer does the company look out for you. So Gen Xers are like, you know, I'm a free agent. I'm going to sign a contract. I'm going to work it. But I know if something cataclysmic happens, I need to be ready. And then our millennials come in and they're not just workers or employees or free agent. Our millennials are talent because mm -hmm. they were raised saying, do what you want and the money will follow. And they were asked what their passions and their dreams were. And so when you speak to a millennial, they're not just having a destination career where they go to one place and stay. They're building a portfolio of experiences and they're cultivating the aspects of their talent that they can use in many different ways. And it's an extraordinary thing because there's all this cross-pollination between companies when millennials are moving around and taking things with them. And so this means that a company has to say, how are we earning their time? It's no longer about loyalty to the institution. That went away with baby boomers. But now it's about how how do we earn your time to stay here? So they see themselves as talent. You ask them what they do and they tell you about their gifts and their passions and their dreams. And then comes Gen Z and they're not just talent, they're influencers. They absolutely know the power of their voice and the power of their ability to change the conversation, which circles us back to canceling, right? If you treat them badly, they will say something and they will quickly share it with their community and you know the fire is on so each one of these things not only impact the workplace but it impacts how we see them in the world too yeah so you said that with each of these generations during their formative years 
something happened to really shape. And when we look at the millennials, um, you know, they're, they were in the 2008 recession and they saw the devastation that happened and the insecurity. Uh, so that's, I'm guessing, a good example of how an event can shape a generation. That's right. And for our millennials, 9-11, right? That's the first major, all of a sudden, the world was not safe, right? Um, Yes, the recession impacted them. But interestingly enough, millennials were also in a position during the recession to be in college, to be in school, a lot of them. And some of them doubled down and they got a master's and they educated themselves right into a huge debt. And that is actually the bigger thing, because that huge debt that came out of all that, their boomers didn't have a chance, their boomer parents didn't didn't have a chance to get the level of education that they wanted collectively as a generation. It is our first generation of MBAs, don't get me wrong. So they made sure their kids got that free to be childhood, right? That adolescence where they got to explore and go to school, but they came out with very large debt. And what that's really impacting about millennials is that they are struggling to buy the home that their parents bought for much less money. They're struggling if, you know, they came out with a law degree, they're in debt to, you know, the the six figure by multiples, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a big piece too. And yes, the recession, as they came out of it and tried to find their first job was incredibly disappointing to them. But it's really the Gen Xers that um, got the the bite on the bum <laughs> for that and shared it with their Gen Z kids, which is why you see so many Gen Z kids right now choosing to go into trades or choosing to go into um, a different approach than a four-year liberal arts mm-hmm. education because they're looking at their millennial siblings and saying, I don't want that debt. So it's funny that you mentioned that my son graduated from Gonzaga and decided he wants to become an electrician. So he uh, has entered the, tr- the trades, you know, he's in a four-year apprenticeship to become an industrial electrician and he's thrilled. He's so happy. He comes home every night, man, you wouldn't believe what I learned today. And he's working with his hands. And uh, so that's what a great example of, of what you were just talking about. So you mentioned our founder, Dan Rogers at work P2P. Um, he started this podcast because he's on a mission to redeem work. And I think a couple of weeks ago when I talked with you, um, I was a little bit surprised to hear you say that everyone thinks they're being honorable at work. Yes. But then when I started thinking about it in terms of generational code and generational expression, it really does make sense. Kind of like mm-hmm. that conversation that you had with your dad when you were a kid yeah. about, you know, why didn't you say, you know, how come you don't say that you love me? So let's start with that. I'd like to I'd like to get into how we help individuals understand generational codes and then we'll go on to what I you know what we hope companies can can learn from that. So let's start with the individuals. Um, you have a concept called recognizing the generational code that's running in your background. Tell us what that is. Yeah. So generational codes are algorithms. They are not ransomware. So they can be evaluated, they can be updated, they can be elevated. But to do that, you have to pull it out of the background where it's running and you're not conscious of it to the foreground and say, does this code, do these values, attitudes, beliefs, motivators still match the future that I'm committed to creating? And so every aspect of our life has a code that was embedded in us initially in those formative years. And our job right now is to listen to what comes out of our mouth and say, wait, 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 let's get curious about that rather than double down belligerent. It's my way or the highway kind of thing. Um, Dan mentioned even the title of this podcast beats working. He mentioned that he said when he was younger, well, it beats working because somebody had influenced him. Like if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. That wasn't exactly Mm -hmm. it, but it was something in that thing. And people around him got offended. He said initially like what it beats working. The code was work is called work for a reason. Right. And so I remember as a, um, you know, a young person in the workforce where I said as a Gen Xer, I want to make a difference. And literally people said, what do you mean by make a difference at work? They honestly did not have any idea what I meant about make a difference at work. So I would be like, well, you know, where you, you know, you feel good about it. And, da, 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 da. and they were like, this is work. 
<laughs> so now what one generation of parents were raised with as a privilege, like some people get to have a job where they feel good about it and they, you know, feel like it's making an impact on the world. They taught their next kids generation to see as their right. And so now when it comes to what people believe work is, our millennials believe that work is something where I should be making a difference. It should be something that feeds my soul and gives me that sense of purpose. And what I call it is their because. Every single person wants to be part of a cause that's worth giving their full being to. And as leaders, our job is to connect the company that we're working in and the work that we're doing with the individual talents because. What is it that they want to create in the world? And this starts right from our website. On the website, do we have the way that we're attracting people to us focused on what they will get while being part of our organization? How will we develop them? How will we expand their capacities? How will we help them advance their mission in life while they're with us, during their journey time with us? Not how do we just force them to stay here. When we, and this is to Dan's point too, when we pull, attract them to us, they will flourish in their time with us and they'll stay with us longer because they're flourishing rather than you know, talent hoarding, like you can't leave, you must stay with me, right? Which was the old code of loyalty, right? They were like, totally. you must stay. And so it's more about, can we engage in the very first conversations, whether they hit our website or they hit our socials as leaders, we need to take a look at where are old codes running on our website. And an old code running on your website might sound like, this is our job description. You will boop, ba -doop, ba -doop, ba -doop, ba -doop, ba -doop. Yeah, candidates and, must bing, bing, bing. Exactly. Anyone without yeah. will not be considered. And you'd be surprised how many people still put out job descriptions, right, that are from that old, like I said, traditionalist boomer code. And they have not yet said, we're in the attraction business. We're in the business of saying, while you're here, we're going to help you cultivate gifts and talents that can take you anywhere. And we will be very excited if you choose to stay here longer. It's what I call in my strategic advising with clients, developing an arc, developing an arc of their time with you. And this really takes some thinking because what will they learn here? How will we expose them to other things than just the quote unquote secret job description we need them to do, right? But when we connect with they're already passionate about their cause, with our cause, because they should be in alignment, they will give their full being to it. You know, a metaphor uh, I think of is, do you remember that movie Monsters, Inc? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Okay, so in the movie, the monsters, you know, scare the kids and then they capture their screams and it powers the city, right? Yeah. But then they discover what's more powerful than screams. Do you remember? Was it laughter? Yes, it was laughter, yeah. right? It was like an exponential <laughs> factor. And so this is the cool thing. When people have their because connected to the organization, it's exponential that now they are lit up, they're innovating, they're giving discretionary effort, discretionary time, because we've earned it. We have not demanded it of them. We have not said, I will fire you. We have not gone into old fight or flight leadership triggers where we're like, you know what, you know, if you don't do this, shame upon you. So you're in fight. Or if you don't do this, you know, you won't be liked. So you go into people pleasing fawn, right? Mm -hmm. We're not leading from that trauma induced. We're actually trauma informed and we're emotionally literate as leaders and people stay with us longer. Anna, keeping with, you know, advice to the individual, if someone is in the workplace, and there really seems to be a disconnect with someone who is of a different generation. What's your best advice on, on how to understand that and how to navigate it? So the first thing is ask generative questions. As leaders, we oftentimes lead with statements and declarations and absolutes. And so if we really want to understand someone, we have to be authentically curious about their lived experience. And so we want to ask them questions about 
Tell me what's up and what's exciting you right now. What are you curious about? What are you exploring? What ideas do you have? What contributions would you like to make? Whether or not we think we can do any of that right now, we as leaders need to ask that kind of generative question that gives them a chance to share their current reality and their lived experience. And the really key thing as leaders, when we're having what I call a 10-10-10 conversation with people, is initially our first response is, that's interesting. Hmm. Tell me more. And thank you. Those are the only three responses you really need. And then the power to pause and let them speak because they will share with us all of those things if we will truly make a honest, psychologically safe space for them. And by the way, we might also find out that they're considering leaving us because they're not feeling seen, heard, and appreciated. And that's table stakes right now. I call it the Shaw factor. Do our people feel seen? Do they feel heard? Do they feel appreciated? And the only way we're gonna know that is if we ask them generative questions pause, let them answer, and then say, tell me more. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, for companies, um, I heard you a couple of weeks ago, you told me that for years, the job has been the jewel and the talent has been the commodity. Yes. And, and you say that that equation really has flipped. And, and I'm hearing that, that that's kind of at the heart of this conflict right now. It's absolutely at the heart. For the last 25 years, we've been obsessed with customer experience. And we now need the next 20, 25 years to be obsessed with the internal customer or the talent, the people's experience, because that's the real jewel for us, is to realize that all of the other things about the organization can't happen without our people feeling seen, heard, and appreciated, and staying with us just that little bit longer because we've created an experience that is worthy to be part of. And so where for many years, you know, baby boomers, 80 million strong, that meant that the job finding it was the jewel. This is the thing that everybody was searching for is I need a job and I got to hold on to the job. But now the talent is the jewel, not only because there are not enough people to fill all the jobs as baby boomers continue to retire and we'll still see 10,000 a day exiting the workplace, but there's also this other sneaky thing happening underneath which is that because our baby boomers were workaholics and are workaholics, when they leave that job, it's taking two to three people to replace them because over their tenure, they spread out their wings and their portfolio to say, okay, I know my job is in this area, but they need a little bit of marketing, so I'm gonna to go to that meeting, I'm gonna network. And they need a little bit of politics to sit on this committee, okay, so I'm gonna put this on my portfolio. And they need a little bit of this. And all of a sudden, jobs oftentimes have like five different accountabilities mixed into one position. And the next person coming along, whether it's Gen X or, or Millennial, is saying, no way am I doing They're that? They're like, that's not one job. That's, that's five. Job. That's five jobs, completely different skill sets. And, you know, frankly, sometimes it wasn't being done well before. So there's a lot of messy stuff right underneath the surface. And they're like, no. So this is where we're seeing the workplace right now. Not only is it just numbers, you know, a lot of people leaving at the same time, but people have to really reconsider what should be the portfolio of the individual. And our millennials and Gen Z also know how to set healthy boundaries. You know, I do a lot of strategic advising in the medical area and doctors that are exiting, you know, maybe they were working 80 hours and maybe they only go back to 40 hours, but the person coming in says, I'm not doing call every night. I'm not doing every weekend. I'm not doing one day uh, mornings and one day evenings. That disrupts my sleep cycles. And I know the cost to me when I do that. And this is, has been sending, you know, folks to be very stressed and upset because they're like, they're putting in boundaries and they can walk away when we say, well, that's not how it works here. And they go, great, <laughs> then I will go somewhere else because the job <laughs> is the commodity and the talent, the people are the jewel. So with that lens, 
I know several business leaders in Seattle who are really struggling right now um, because younger workers are refusing to come back to the workplace, the physical workspace. Um, what's your best advice to managers in that conversation? Because they're both, they both think they're right. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, there may be a legitimate reason to be in a physical space, but, but there's this conflict. So if you were brought in to advise, uh, you know, how to solve that situation, what's your best advice, Anna? Okay, so Mark, I'm going to have to tease you here for a second. Because you said they're, you know, to come back to the workplace. Right there sneaking underneath it is a little bit of a generational code, which is work <laughs> is a destination, right? And that was the traditionalist <laughs> and the boomer code was work is something that you go to and do. Yes, you, you just read my code. <laughs> I did. But it's such a useful thing. And thank you for doing that because you said, how do we deal with our codes? We listen to what we say with a new ear. That's why I like to call it out for folks because that is an older code that work is a destination. Telecommuting was, you know, started for Gen Xers and Gen Xers, you know, if they got one day a week that they could telecommute, right? And we didn't have all these wonderful tools that we have now, but for our millennials and absolutely for our Gen Z, they will only geographically go to a location-centered work if there is an absolute and arguable reason that they need to do that. That's hospitality, right? That is um, restaurants, that's healthcare for many, many of the jobs, but not all of the jobs, right? So as a leader, you have to ask yourself, am I asking them to come to this physical location because it's more convenient for me? Or am I asking them because there's actually something that happens in the physical location that cannot be done anywhere else? Now, notice I didn't say cannot be done effectively anywhere else because believing what's effective can also be a generational code. For our Gen Zers, they do not believe that being physically in person is by default more effective than being online. They know how to use the collaborative tools. A lot of my work right now is in choreographing and designing experiences in the virtual space that are asking generative questions and creating psychologically safe small groups so that we can have intimacy across the experience even when we're virtual. And that's what a lot of people aren't doing in their time that they're in the hybrid space is creating equity between the people that are on site and the people that are online and the people that are living in the in-between with both and in the hybrid. So we have to, as leaders say, okay, I need to do an audit myself and say, what are the things that we actually physically have to have you on site? And I get it. Sometimes people are like, but we've got a long-term commercial, you know, office space contract and we need to do something about that. And of course, we're kind of getting to the point where some of those contracts are, you know, uh, at the end of their life cycle and they're not renewing. But uh, I just did a piece with Johnson & Johnson and they have done it where Monday, Wednesday, a certain group of people come in. A different group come in on Tuesday, Thursday to the physical site, and then nobody comes in on Friday. So they released a bunch of their office space. And if now, if everybody wanted to come in, they couldn't because they've now ch channeled it to, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, it's inconvenient for everyone <laughs> if we meet, right? So we have to think about that. Like, why are we demanding it? Is it my generational code? Because it's easier for me because I feel more comfortable when you're in the room with me. Or is there really a reason that we could we do if we knew how to use the tools better, if we had somebody that could come in and facilitate and design and choreograph things such that we had real life to life condition, intimate conversations, could we do this virtually now? I believe in the both and. There are things that sitting next to someone and having the casual in-between conversations is just incredibly valuable. You and I both are members of Seattle Four Rotary. And, you know, I love sitting next to someone and having lunch with them. But it's the cadence that we do it with. It's the reason that we do it for. And it's the willingness to ask the hard question. Could this be done in another format and create more equity between our people that are on site online and living in the hybrid. That's really wise advice. It does make me think that, you know, how much of this argument of get back to work is driven by that really expensive office space in downtown Seattle that yeah. 
I mean, they're paying a lot of money for this office space, but it sounds like what you said about Johnson & Johnson, um, some companies are starting to rethink that. Right there. I just, I gotta, I gotta call that out because people are saying that, get back to, and they yeah. basically, their people are saying, what do you think we've been doing? Just by the, <laughs> by the unconscious saying that, it sounds yeah. like you think we've been at home not doing the work. Let's look at the numbers. The numbers show us that productivity went up when we completely were uh, you know, online. They showed us that people worked 48 minutes more in a workday. So this is where people have to be like really willing to notice, am I putting someone down in my language, even if I didn't intend to, but it kind of slides in there anyway, because that's what makes somebody go, all right, Indeed, you know, Zip Recruiter or, you know, some other, some other, you know, recruiting platform. And, you know, you're treating me like I'm a commodity. I'm going to go ahead and start looking. I'm going to swipe left on you and I'm going to move on. So we have to really think about what we're saying and what could it leak that we really believe in our code, which is not the, the future of work. It's the past. I think what's interesting, you mentioned the Rotary Club of Seattle. You and I have been uh, longtime members, and we've been trying to to grow the organization, and we've been having a hard time communicating the value of the organization to younger uh, working professionals in Seattle. But as you were saying, that in between those in between conversations, I think back over the years, I literally have sat next to and had lunch with Bill Gates Sr. Mm-hmm. for an hour, and with Herb Bridge, and with Dorothy Bullitt, and with. The list goes on and on and on. I never would have been able to have conversations with those iconic, Phil Smart, with those iconic business leaders had I not been part of this service organization. So I, I, I don't want to sound old and disconnected and telling young people what to do, but I see that as a huge opportunity to grow uh, just as a human being and also grow professionally. I have so many mentors in that organization. I've gotten so much professional advice from from fellow Rotarians. I just, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to rant, but uh, well, you know, I, I so kind of ranted. <laughs> well, this is perfect, and you can choose how much of this you want to keep. But, oh, no, I'm being analyzed. <laughs> no, 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 I, I love it. I love, I, I'll never forget the first time I came to Seattle for Rotary as a guest. I walked across the room, and I saw at least four people that I'd been trying to get in a meeting in their office sitting in the room. And I'm like, I'm in, right? Because <laughs> I was like, I want to sit down with these people as a peer. And it's not that, you know, in Rotary, you sit down and you start pitching someone because that is not you are there, you know, as people who believe in service above self. Right. And that's why I loved it, because it was already my values and my and my thinking. And I was like, I want to be in a room where I'm putting my values in action with these people. And then, yes, you know, casually over time, we're going to get into the conversation of um, how I can support them or how they can support me. And that's going to be an organic thing. But here's where Rotary and organizations like Rotary have an opportunity to level up. During the pandemic, we could have created connections between all of the rotaries where I was not constrained to the network of just my rotary and whatever other rotary I physically drove to and sat in their room, right? Now, every single Rotarian had to learn how to get online and bless our hearts, our Rotarians. It took a bit. It took a minute, but we all learned. And now every Rotarian, no matter if you're 18 or, you know, 108, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I am so guilty, Anna. If I had a nickel for every time someone said, Mark, you're on mute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, can you imagine how much money we all would have made if we could charge people? I would have thousands of dollars. (laughs) The Rotary Foundation uh, funds would have been, that's what we should have done. We should have charged fees for every time somebody was on mute. But the thing is, is the true network of Rotary Mm. could have been leveraged. I could have been meeting people in other cities. And I did bring this up. Don't get me wrong. I brought this up to folks, but they were like, oh, that's too much. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's how you leverage what's happening in the room with the leverage that's happening in the Zoom. Because most Mm -hmm. Rotaries were happening on Zoom, right? Yeah, we did learn from that. And when Adam Brotman was one of our speakers during the pandemic, and he so uh, clearly stated, hey, look, you guys are using new muscles. Yes. Um, you know, we're on Zoom. And that has carried over after the pandemic that all of our meetings are now hybrid. If you want to go down in person and meet, you can or you can do it on Zoom. But I'm ta- yes, but I'm talking about the network. 
I'm uh, talking about the larger being network. Able, the larger network. And here I am in Seattle, but I'd love to know somebody in LA that happens to be in this space. And I could reach yeah. out and say, I'm a Rotarian here, you're a Rotarian there. We we know we already live by the four-way test. So that's what I'm talking about is yeah. that organizations that are contracting back to their physical uh, identity. Yes, mm -hmm. we've got Zoom open, but we're really a physical identity are missing the curve. They're missing the moment. Anna, could you give some kind of high level advice? Because I know that I'm hoping that a lot of business leaders are listening to this episode. What are the biggest challenges do you think that companies are facing in communicating effectively across multiple generations in the workplace? What's some just some basic advice? Because I don't know that a lot of business leaders have, have crossed this bridge yet, at least to the level that you consult. Well, I think one of the things that people are confronting is they're trying to control the conversation too much and they're trying to keep it narrowed to certain conversations. One of the companies I work with has started to stand up different Slack channels on many different topics. And it can range from conversations around gender pronouns, a Slack channel on gender identity, to a cooking channel. They can be having conversations about, you know, where uh, on-site versus online versus having a conversation about, you know, getting continuing education and allowing people to have the conversations that matter inside the workplace such that we get to know each other. Back to the on-site versus online, the only way we're gonna build connective tissue between us is if we open up the channel of conversations. Yes, we need to set the respectful tone, Yes, we need to say that, you know, inside this conversation there, we're not, you know, you can't be um, attacking other people, but I've seen people do it incredibly successfully so that people can actually feel connected to each other and know each other. One company, half the people in the organization are in Greece and half the people are in the U.S. And it's a fascinating thing what the Greeks are asking about certain topics and their perspective as it is in the US. And it's incredibly respectful between them all. But most companies are keeping it too focused on just the work and where our Gen Z and our millennials come into the workplace and they say, listen, I don't check myself at the door as an identity. I want to feel like I can bring my whole self to work. And when you don't allow me to do that, you have basically said, this is a a short-term experience that I'm going to have with you before I move on to somewhere else where I don't feel like I have to fit into the organization. And that's where organizations oftentimes are just missing the boat. They think, well, that's because it's work. Work is called work for a reason. And so how do we truly make people feel comfortable and open up the channels inside our organization and be at the bottom line transparent? Our Gen Xers are the first generation that started demanding tr transparency in the workplace, but you know there weren't enough of them to <laughs> move the needle as much as they wanted. But our millennials absolutely expect organizations to be transparent, not only about their policies and their practices, but about their how they live their values. And Gen Z absolutely know they deserve it. So performative, where you say you're going to do something and you put out a press release and you and you, you know, put it on your website on a page, but never take any follow-up action, it will absolutely get you, at the very least, seeing your people walk out the door if they don't leave a little cancel note on the way. So what would you say is the best strategy for preventing turnover in today's workplace? Uh, don't over-rely on high-tech to do the job. In sales, we say never send a piece of paper to do a person's job, right? Like don't just send a proposal and think, oh, that's gonna get the whole job done for me. The leaders right now, and I'm constantly working with organizations on this in generation, generational um, advising, is we've gotta level up our leaders and managers and supervisors capacity to have high touch conversations with people. That 10, 10, 10 I spoke about is so important. If I do not have a conversation with my manager about where I am today and where I can go for here, from here, if you're not in the future pathing conversation with me, from the job interview, the number one thing that we are seeing in the numbers is that millennials and Gen Z want to be talking about what are my opportunities? 
in the interview. Like, and I know our boomers are thinking, wait a second, and our Gen Xers too, like, get this job first, right? And they're like, okay, but I wanna know that you are ready to have a pathway conversation with me forward. And so in the interview, and then the first 30, 60, 90 days, do not misunderstand, they're still interviewing you. You are still earning them as a employee, as talent. So in that first 60, 30, 60, 90, that's when it's incredibly important for the leader to be in there having a conversation with them about their because, about their future, about what's important to them and where do they need support to continue flourishing inside the arc that they design in the company. Because if you're not having that conversation by three to six months, they're saying, okay, where do I go from here? And by nine to 12 months, if they stay that long, they're actively searching for a new place and their discretionary effort is pulled back. They are no longer investing in. And, and that's right there, one of the code that runs underneath it is the generational code for our baby boomers and our Gen Xers too, is that there is a loyalty to the institution or for our baby boomers and for our Gen Xers, it's to the individual, like the person that hired you, the person that brought you on, you know, ran cover for you. And for our millennials, their loyalty is to their identity, to their sense of self, like what do they want to build? And for our Gen Zs, their loyalty is to the issues that they're passionate about. Do I feel like I can work on the issues here at this company and advancing those, or do I need to find somewhere else to go? So the number one thing is train your people in the high touch conversations and do them with a consistency and a frequency that is predictable at least once a month, if not every other week, so that people know I've got time with my manager where I get to share my lived experience in the moment and see how I design my path forward. That's amazing wisdom because how many times have we seen you get a job and there's radio silence? It's like, well, we gave you the job and that's your reward. Yeah. And there's not a single conversation about, hey, how's it going? Or, hey, what would you like to grow into here at this company? Hey, do you have any ideas about what we're doing in this space? I mean, that, that's so foreign to so many different businesses. You know, I, I call it the stumble upon method. You got a job and they're like, okay, sit down, do work, put your head down. And <laughs> at the water cooler, maybe you talk to somebody and, you know, six months later, a year later, two years later, somebody tells you, you know, there's this resource over here that you could use. Or did you know that they'll reimburse or da, 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 da. So you kind of stumble onto the resources if you stay that way. And you either leave because you don't find what you're looking for or you, you retire, right? So this stumble upon method. And it's... Again, what I tell people is it's corporate hazing when people say, well, that's the way it was for me. Any one of the things that you need to make sure you watch for is any time you say, when I was your age, when I started, <laughs> when I entered, when I, any time you come from a personal example, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because I promise you, they are not going to be thrilled, dazzled and inspired by that. Right. They're like, nope. You know, if I if I wanted to hear that, I would go on YouTube and look up somebody's, you know, history of a story. Please don't do that. It's just not as fascinating as you think. I'm sorry, boomers. I love you with all love, but woo, you gotta you gotta stop speaking in paragraphs. <laughs> but also, Anna, when these younger workers who have not been tended like you would tend a crop or a flower or whatever. When they leave, there's this massive judgment, like, I can't believe that that kid left. All, all that we gave them, and, and they just left us in a lurch. Like, it was their fault and their problem. Like, like, they were the problem. And there's no awareness that, hey, maybe I could have done something to, to create an environment that would make them want to stay. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's one of the things that came out during the pandemic when the, you know, the firestorm happened around quiet quitting. And they were like, how dare they? And I'm like, okay, so here's the thing. They told you about things. They said this isn't working. And you said, shut up, buckle down and do your job, right? And they said, 
Okay, well then I'm just going to, anytime we see a, a trend like that, you gotta look back to what drove the trend. And the fact that they, when they tried to be out loud about it, got smacked down, made it, okay, well I'm just gonna quietly do that. Because it all goes back to that generational code of, I am talent. I am not loyal to an institution because that two-way loyalty code was broken so long ago. So why do you think I'm going to continue to honor something that you have violated the moment you need to downsize, the moment you need to right size? I mean, look at our technology you know, industry right now. People around Seattle and Bellevue are absolutely, you know, shell-shocked from all the layoffs that happened and companies saying, well, we over-invested, we overdid this. And so why would they be loyal to a technology <laughs> firm? Because they know if the company needs to right-size its bottom line, it will. So this is where you asked me in the beginning, like, how do we know to update our codes? These things are signals to say, you're operating on a code that just does not rule the day anymore. And it's expensive. It's expensive to lose people because you're not asking them those generative questions and then listening with authentic curiosity because they will tell you they don't, they don't want to leave. It's not like our millennials and Gen Z are like, you know what, I'd like to be insecure and move around, right? <laughs> now, I will admit that one of the things they have that did not was not there for Gen Xers is the ability to move back in with mom and dad. At all stages of their um, experience, many millennials have had a resource in their parents that Gen Xers would have been incredibly shamed to move home, right? They, not that they didn't live in their parents' basement at times, but it was not something you proudly brandished, brandished to all your friends and said, look at me, right? They're my best friends in the world. But both our millennials and our Gen Z have had a bit more of that safety net, but they've also had to use it because the debt they were in and the you know uh, fragility of the workplace as they did come out in the after the recession was such that we needed to so it's one of those things that now we actually have to be saying what are old things that we think we're going to go back to if you ever are using the phrase back to or return to you're the one in, that's in trouble there is no going back there is no return, there's forward, and there's asking the questions, what's needed now? Where do you think all of this is going to shake out in the workplace, Anna? I think that it's gonna shake out that we're gonna have a much more humanistic workplace. I think that the balance between capitalism and humanism is fighting right now, but we are going to find that in order for the jewels to want to be with us, they're going to actually say, this is, is this the kind of experience that I can be healthy inside of, that I can be happy inside of, that I can be proud of sharing with people that I'm doing? And by the way, the great news is the companies that are doing this are also the most profitable. We know the companies with the most diverse boards and the most women on their boards, they're also in the most profitable. Companies that institute any DEIB uh, policies and practices are the most profitable. So in my work, I'm continuing to help companies see when you create a great experience for your people, when you are a great company to work with, you also have a great bottom line because all the way back to our metaphor of Monsters, Inc., laughter is way more powerful than screams. And so are you creating an environment that creates powerful laughter to impact the profit? That's amazing. That's, uh, I feel like that's a good place to end, but I can't. I have to ask you about public speaking. Absolutely. Um, so you're a really experienced public speaker. You were president of the National Speakers Association. Um, you were, were, was, you were inducted into their Hall of Fame. Was it this year or when? Uh, in 2021. 2021. So public speaking is such an important part of climbing the corporate ladder, of succeeding at work. Yeah. For those business leaders and others listening, Anna, to this conversation, where's a good starting point if they want to become a better public speaker? Well, I think that when you say public speaker, I think the key thing that people have to think about is every time you're leading a meeting, every time you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, you are public speaking. So a lot of people think, you know, when I get in front of a Rotary Club or when I get in front of, you know, the shareholders meeting or when I do something like that. But the, the best thing to think about is 
how many questions did I ask before I ever started speaking in front of any individual or group such that I know the, th- the pain threshold that they're in and the words and language that I'm using are directly giving back to them the thing that they're most concerned about. So to get better at it, you actually ask more questions and then to get better at it, you start practicing and watching. Do I get a nod from people when I say that? Do I, hit, do I see them sigh and release when I say that? Do I see them lean in when I say that? So it's not just about can you craft a, a well-articulated, highbrow conversation, but can you lean into and feel into how do people expand or contract when I say what I say. So I think that's the very first thing is that you as a leader start giving people more opportunity to share how they feel around what you're saying and how they are able to take what you're saying and move forward with it. Then if you're you know, really wanting to get um, coaching, then you hire a coach. You hire somebody who will actually help you, can, you know, take all of your stories, your vignettes, the, the statistics that you have, and weave them in such a way that it creates an arc that people can follow along. I think all too often people will hide behind in professional you know, settings, business settings, they'll hide behind the numbers. They'll hide behind the visuals or the data. And yes. right now we can get all of that online. If I just want more bullets or more numbers or more content, I can go on AI chat GPT and pull that out. So people are looking for, can you tell it to me like it's a story? Can you tell it to me in a way that's accessible to me? Think about right now, Netflix, Hulu, uh, Prime, all of these platforms have multiple different taste communities. In fact, at one point, Netflix released that it had 1,300 different taste communities. And what you are seeing is all of these different lived experiences communicated in a story thread. And people say, oh my gosh, they understand me. They know me. So as leaders are looking to be better at being public speakers, the question is, can I tell the story that I need them to hear in a way that they see their life connected by it. And if I can't get there, get a coach that can help me pull out my own fear that's hiding underneath the slides and the data hmm. and the you know things that make it sound super formal and super you know official, but leave the humanity out. I think you and I have seen hundreds of <laughs> presentations from CEOs over the years. And you're right, the most boring uh, are are the shareholders meeting slide deck that they just slide over to to speak to a public organization and it's it's horrible it's it's just boring and yeah. you know Howard Bihar former president of Starbucks is is just a, a a hero of mine and when I heard him speak one time I invited him to to speak to our club the year that I served as president he told well now this is a different time but he told three stories in a 25-minute speech that captured exactly who he was and who Starbucks is. And he didn't give us a single statistic, except maybe in the Frappuccino story that became a multi-billion dollar product. But he's, he's a perfect example that when you tell a story that tells the larger story, um, people care about that, right? That's right. And I think right now, something that, you know, bring it back to specifics on the generations is you look at Instagram or TikTok, all they're doing is telling stories, but notice how much time they take to tell the story. It's anywhere from nine seconds to 48 seconds. It's not 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. So you got to make sure when you're telling the story that you are not the hero of the story, one, and you know, you know who you are. I'm just going to say, you know who you are, right? Where you somehow always end up as the hero of the story. And you got to look at what can I take out? How can I streamline this? Because you will get people swiping left, you know, scrolling past you in their minds and they'll be going to their devices. And now, of course, if you're in the meeting and you've said no devices, okay, that, that you're, you've got them captive. But 
you have to earn the audience now. I don't care what level of leader you are. You've got to earn the audience's eyeballs. And that means you got to look at it, write it once, test it, rewrite it, test it, rewrite it again. And, and then you're going to start getting closer to what earns the audience. So I'd like to wrap things up, Anna, with this thought. If you're a business leader or just in the business world and you're listening to this podcast and you haven't really ever considered generational differences, answer the question, why should that person care? Because this takes time, it takes effort, it, it takes self-examination. It's not an easy process, but it's richly rewarding. So why should they care? It's touching every aspect of your profitability. Your people are leaving you because you don't understand generational insights and codes. Your people are, are choosing to not buy from you because you've done something that signals to them that, you know what, this is not a good option. They are telling their friends about it way faster than you even know. And they are also choosing to stay away from your career site because you've signaled to them by things you are doing or aren't doing on your website, whether or not you've updated your generational codes. You have signaled to them that you don't really care about what their lived experience is or what their passions are. And so they just stay away. So understanding what makes them tick and ticks them off can be a significant profit builder for you. Alana, this has been fantastic. It's always great to catch up with you, but I just think there's so much wisdom in what you bring to the world. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes to your business and your consulting and your books and everything else that you're doing. You're fantastic. <laughs> this is so much fun. You know, Mark, I just have to say, every time I've ever heard you interview anyone, you have such a warm way of making that person's brilliance come out. So thank you for allowing me to be with you and feel like, you know, like, okay, I got to say and share some things that will make a difference, but it was inside the listening you create. So thank you, Mark. Ah, my pleasure. All right, see you soon. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.